for the Republican donor who like wants to pretend that like we're going back to the you know the good old days of Mitt Romney and George Bush and John McCain, it's like you know Nikki Haley is speaking their love language. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, June 9th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about where the Silicon Valley donor money is moving in the race for the Republican presidential nomination, and why Nikki Haley has the support of some of the biggest names in tech. We also dig into why Twitter founder Jack Dorsey is suddenly hyping anti-vax Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as a challenger to Joe Biden. Things are getting weird out there, folks, and Teddy has the latest. And later, Tina Wynn joins Ben to decipher the latest plot lines in the GOP race. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer to talk about Silicon Valley politics, where some of the Silicon Valley money is heading, whether Jack Dorsey is actually supporting RFK Jr. in his quixotic gadfly bid for the Democratic nomination. But first, Teddy, I want you to tell the world about your basketball injury. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I play in a intense pickup league. I was going for an offensive rebound yesterday. I have three stitches in my right eye. I told Peter this morning, I am, you know, he was encouraging me to uh, stop hooping, but I'm a decade younger and... Uh, I can get through this in a way that I think these 40-somethings can't. Fine. Yeah, I mean, like, the reason I said that, one, my buddy Scott blew his, out his Achilles playing tennis. Uh, I have another friend who hurt himself playing team sports. But Katie's, a bunch of her NBA pals have a pickup basketball league, and there were two people that got injured. One one was an ACL just from playing pickup. But, uh, yeah, I'm done with team sports. More power to you. So, Teddy, uh, you have a piece up bunch of news and notes really out of the tech world where some of the money is flowing in the Republican primary and and also in the Democratic primary potentially. But I do want to start with what I mentioned. Jack Dorsey, who really isn't known for being like super political, the founder of Twitter for people who don't know, has sort of been like floating the idea that RFK Jr. might be the guy to 
disrupt Democratic politics, that the DNC needs to allow him to debate. You know, RFK Jr. obviously probably has some credible Democratic positions, but he is a loud and proud Mm -hmm. anti-vaxxer. That certainly probably plays well with the contrarian impulses of the tech universe. But what's going on there? Is he actually, is he going to put some money behind RFK Jr.? Or is this just sort of Jack being a weirdo on the internet? Well, being a weirdo on the internet has a lot of power in its own right. I mean, Jack has a big platform. Mm -hmm. You know, he does not speak up really often about politics, but frankly, these days, really about anything. I mean, you know, it's his silence during the kind of the destruction of his platform by his friend Elon Musk has been (laughs) telling about just how he sees his role in the public dialogue, which is why it's crazy that like, you know, the, the one thing where he's assigned to speak up about has been about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Jack is, is not that political. You're correct. You know, I remember a story I wrote during the 2020 primary about Tulsi Gabbard, who was a favorite of Jack Dorsey. Mm-hmm. You know, Tulsi wanted Jack to really go to bat for her in Silicon Valley during the Democratic primary. And Jack said no, he would not host a fundraiser for her. I mean, Jack has thoughts on politics just like anybody does, you know, and he's sort of contrarian you know, doesn't like the left, but is still sort of a member of the left in a kind of an anti-establishment way, just like kind of Tulsi mm-hmm. Gabbard uh, mm-hmm. is herself. But Jack is kind of giving voice to, I think, what lots of people in Silicon Valley feel right now, especially in like the top, tippy top uh, of the elite, where, where this dominant sensibility right now in the politics of the leading lights of the industry is it's not really like conservative per se. It's just sort of uh-huh. anti-left. Jack was tweeting of the video of Joe Biden falling down the stairs that, Peter, you may you may have seen it or you would have seen if you weren't on yes. in South Africa. No, I saw it. I saw it. That, that made its way to South Africa. You know, and, 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 and Jack was <laughs> tweeting... Jack was tweeting that video being like, you know, we need better options, kind mm-hmm. of a typical business brain speak. And this is very much sort of how lots of Silicon Valley leaders feel, which is they're more perturbed by what they see as the excesses of the left than they are perturbed by Trumpism or, frankly, just, you know, standard conservatism now, right? There's this mm-hmm. this feeling, you know, I just spent a week in, in Silicon Valley talking with lots of fundraisers and politicos out there. And the, the sense that I get is that the ascendant ideology among tech people in the post-Trump era is just like shitting on the libs. And yet, of, yeah, course, totally. of course, Elon is is like the stereotype of that. And, but I, I think lots of tech leaders agree with Elon privately or agree with a lot of what Elon says privately. And mm-hmm. it's going to be very interesting to, to me to see how this plays out in, in 2024. Because I do think that like your average VP at Google is still a liberal. Like they still vote for Joe Biden in 2020. You know, they still believe in mm-hmm. climate change and abortion access and, you know, parts of the criminal justice reform movement. And like, I'm not talking about your, your like run of the mill tech person. I'm talking about like the elites. And I mm-hmm. think they are trending in the post Trump era much more conservative than they were two or three years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why. But I think Jack is maybe more of a bellwether than Elon is because Elon, you know, we know what Elon thinks, but the fact that Jack is like saying we need to primary Biden, that is sort of a tech brain mentality that I think is is on the rise. Yeah, I think you nailed it. You know, you wrote this in your piece, the the drumbeat in Silicon Valley ideologically is just the backlash to progressivism. I called it like contrarianism, whatever. I mean, I think the only coherent ideology in that world is cut capital gains, like who's going to protect RSUs, et cetera, like on the tax and economic side, mm-hmm. probably just universally Republican. But yeah, I mean, I think, again, and most of these people are men, 
like these CEOs and, and, and tech leaders and VC folks, they see themselves as titans of industry uh, in, in the 21st century. And there's not a lot of coherent, forward-looking ideology. It's just backlash to like pronouns and like things like that. And that, you know, just being a contrarian is a substitute for uh, a worldview at this point and among a lot of these people. I do want to point out though, RFK Jr. is like a gadfly for sure, but he's not polling at 1% no. in the Democratic primary. He is around 20% pretty consistently, you know, against Biden. Biden has soft support. We know that. But the Democratic National Committee and the White House, both with reorganizing the primary calendar and I'm sure with debates, not having debates, is just doing incumbency protection here. But Teddy, I mean, back in 2019 and 2020, the threshold to get into a Democratic debate, according to the DNC, was polling above 2%. <laughs> so according to the DNC's rules back in 2019 and 2020, there should be a debate, but there's not going to be. Look, I think a lot of that number isn't necessarily pro Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It's just checking a name that isn't Joe Biden for people who get called up by pollsters. So another thing that jumped out at me from your piece is Silicon Valley Scion, as you call him, Tim Draper, uh, you also called him an, an oddball, <laughs> is putting his big money behind Nikki Haley, who is not polling at 20% in the Republican primary. Nikki is a donor favorite. She has been going back to her days as governor of South Carolina. She can do really well in those rooms. I mean, so like her biggest selling point as governor of South Carolina was bringing business to the state, getting big business to come to South Carolina. It also sounds like that Chamath Palihapitiya, aka Chamath on the internet, is also behind Nikki Haley. What's your take on why these big donors are lining up behind Nikki Haley? Because it's not insignificant. I mean, you've talked about this many times before under current campaign finance laws. Any single rich person can just spend a lot of money in support of their favorite candidate in Iowa, in New Hampshire, anywhere they want. Right. It's the uh, Larry Ellison problem of 2024 or the Newt Gingrich, Sheldon Adelson problem of 2012. Hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, Haley has a significant donor support. She's coming out here for six events in California uh, next week, which is next week is shaping up in, the, in California and the Bay Area to be this sort of mega fundraising uh, palooza. You know, you have uh, Ron DeSantis, mm -hmm. Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Tim Scott, and Nikki Haley all in the Bay Area like a 10-day period next week. But Haley is sort of a, a throwback, right? I mean, a throwback to 2016 or yeah. 2012. She she kind of had made herself into this Trump-ish figure, right? I mean, obviously, she served in his cabinet. But for the Republican donor who, like, wants to pretend that, like, we're going back to the, you know, the good old days of Mitt Romney and George Bush and John McCain, it's like, you know, Nikki Haley is speaking their love language, right? Talking about free trade and, you know, uh, interventionism overseas and, you know, the Republican Party appealing to more women and minorities, um, mm -hmm. you know, things that Trump does not talk about or does not act, <laughs> does not credibly talk about. I'll put it that way. But you're right. Like, I mean, like there is this mismatch, though, between what donors want and what voters want, where you, you are not wrong to point out that like Robert F. Kennedy is pulling higher than Nikki Haley in, in her primary. And it's a question of like, who is more of a credible threat to win the win the Republican primary? Um, you know, I don't think Nikki Haley will be the Republican nominee. I don't think Robert F. Kennedy will be the Democratic nominee, but like they're obviously different races, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the point there is that Nikki Haley is not, I don't think it's controversial to say, is like not, does not have a credible shot at winning right now. And I think there's lots of donors who 
are almost settling this election on the Republican side from the outset. Um, like typically the way that, you know, donors or frankly voters process a campaign is you sort of start out at the beginning being excited about who you're naturally excited about. Um, and then, you know, as long as you don't vote in Iowa or New Hampshire, like by the time you're actually voting, you're going to have to settle, right? You're going to have to choose your second or third choice because your first choice is out of the running. And that's true with donors too. Like donors typically have, you know, your, your favorite candidates, and then you settle as, you know, these people don't have much of a shot. But now this cycle, I feel like people are seeing Republican donors settle from the outset behind DeSantis, where mm-hmm. DeSantis is not where lots of donors are personally, ideologically. Mm-hmm. I think lots of them would be more in line with someone like Nikki Haley or Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. But they know those people have no chance of winning. So they're going to get behind Ron DeSantis. Um, and that's why I say they're settling from the outset. I think Tim Draper ultimately will be a Ron DeSantis donor when all is said and done. But right, right now he is um, hosting Nikki Haley in the Bay Area, I believe, on the 14th. Shamath is going to be involved with the Haley operation. He was going to host a fundraiser for her earlier this spring. It fell through for boring reasons. But like, I do think there will be um, Silicon Valley support for Nikki. But I just think that ultimately there's going to be very quick donor consolidation at least the preponderance of donors will consolidate behind DeSantis. And people will admit in candid conversations that it's not always because they're like gung-ho about Ron DeSantis. It's frankly because they are gung-ho about beating Trump and they yep. know that this is the one credible candidate that can win. Yeah. And they can also afford to spread their money around and put a little behind Nikki now and maybe some behind DeSantis later, et cetera, et cetera, or vice versa. Yeah. I think lots of Republican candidates who are not DeSantis are going to have trouble raising money. Like, you know, right, you know, this is a week we're recording this, Peter, when like Chris Christie and Mike Pence and Doug Burgum are all announcing campaigns. And I think there's going to be a money problem for anybody not named Trump, DeSantis, or Mm -hmm. maybe Tim Scott. Like, I think that ultimately there's not going to be money for. I'm very curious to see how Pence does with fundraising, for instance. Very curious to see how Christie does with fundraising. I think there's very clear sense from the high dollar community that there needs to be consolidation ASAP. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. why these opening months for DeSantis are so critical, because if there's not consolidation, like it's going to be chaos. One thing to point out, Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, long shot candidate, is a former software executive and billionaire who could self-fund his campaign. So, you know, North Dakota isn't known for being a uh, big donor base, but uh, he might not need it. He is friends with good friends with Steve Ballmer. Oh, I, I did not realize until relatively recently. So um, Ballmer is, of course, like the sixth or seventh richest guy in the world and the owner of the Clippers who will not be signing me to his practice squad, as we now know. <laughs> I was going to wrap on a basketball note, too, but that's good for me. Teddy, have a great weekend, man, and uh, tend to your wounds. I'll follow your medical updates on Instagram. Thank you. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy. And this is a perfect moment to bring Tina Wynn onto the program here to help make sense of the revolt slash temper tantrum that Republican hardliners are throwing in the House right now. Tina, on Wednesday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy called off all the votes for the rest of the week while they work to resolve these tensions with these 11 or so members who are basically picketing any action in Congress. They've been stalling normal business. But the strangest part of all of this to me is that McCarthy and Steve Scalise, his, his number two, are both saying publicly in the press that they don't really know what this group even wants or what they're really protesting. What do you make of all of this? And, and, and what's your sense of what is really happening behind the scenes? Oh, my goodness. I... First of all, I thought I was going to have at least one week of not dealing with any of this. So uh, <laughs> no thanks. Thanks, 20. Thanks, conservatives. Here's the thing. If you rewind, a lot of these members are affiliated with the group of 20, 20 or 21 members who held up McCarthy's speakership back in January. And one of the big unresolved plot points from that, I wasn't able to nail it. Pretty much every reporter could not nail this, was exactly what was in the handshake deal between McCarthy and the 20 that allowed them to vote for him as speaker. And the thing is, it was not written down. No one really knows what it was. McCarthy didn't tell people what had happened. A bunch of House Republicans suddenly learned that, like, oh, gosh, my committee seat has not been given to me. Oh, gosh, what happened here? And, you know, the point of a secret handshake deal is that it's secret. So, <laughs> right. This reminds me of the, in like the West Wing episode, the, the secret plan to fight inflation. Here we had a, a secret handshake deal and, and nobody in Washington seems to know what's in it, except for Kevin McCarthy and the 20. Yeah, but here's the thing that I'm thinking is happening right now. I talked to a couple of people who are affiliated with the 20 allies, what have you. And like, they don't know what the 20 are pissed about. They don't know what these holdouts want. And one guy I spoke to says that he's pretty sure they're just really pissy about the way that the debt deal went down. Like, they feel disrespected by McCarthy. They feel like he ran over their demands. If you look at the way that the vote broke down last week, 
more Democrats voted for the bill than Republicans and pretty much the entire House Freedom Caucus voted against the debt bill, too. And if you're a conservative who loves ideological purity, who loves making the world as conservative as possible, this is not cool. One would not be happy about this. And as we saw during the speaker battle, there are hardliners in the party who are so hellbent on making sure their agenda goes through that they're willing to hold up the entirety of Congress and possibly even running the country in exchange for them being extremely principled and conservative. Yeah, it it does seem like there is an element here of this group trying to save face, to remind McCarthy they have this leverage over him after the debt ceiling showdown, where they did have this opportunity to call a vote to depose him, to get more of what they wanted out of this bill. And instead, they blinked, maybe because they didn't want to actually explode this nuclear bomb over the global economy. And so now, you know, they want to remind McCarthy that they still have this power. They're not going to get steamrolled. But they did blink. And, and, and I think it has exposed them a little bit as a paper tiger. So, you know, a little bit of the air has come out of this threat potentially. And, and so perhaps this temper tantrum is just sort of a way to to reassert a little bit of that power that they lost. But of course, I, I'm sure there's also more going on behind the scenes, even if they are not on the same page about what the ask is. Do we have any sense of of a few of the things that this group might want, even if they're not all the same thing? Honestly, it's sort of unclear right now. If you look at what the House leadership is saying right now, they keep telling them, come to the table and air out your grievances. I think that was what Patrick McHenry, who's a big ally of McCarthy, was saying publicly. Steve Scalise, who's the House Majority Whip, was like, I honestly don't know what it is McCarthy and the 20 had agreed on. So come tell us what it is, guys. Come tell us what it is you actually want. And if you like read between the lines of what the 20 and like the key members of the conservative bloc had been demanding during the debt ceiling vote, it was a lot of DEI related things, a lot of spending cap related existing work requirements for Medicare, Medicaid, government spending. I don't know. You could really just boil down a lot of conservative grievances to, we want to drain the swamp. We want to put caps on spending. Everyone leave us alone. I'm sure in the next couple of weeks or so, maybe even next week, they'll come out with a more coherent package of what it is that they actually want. But in the meantime... Yeah, I feel like that is sort of a a funny subplot that it seems like McCarthy and Scalise are trying to force publicly this group of hardliners to actually say what it is that they want and put that on the record, because right now it's all happening behind the scenes. And certainly there's some kayfabe going on here, too, because, you know, you had McCarthy telling reporters this week that he, quote, feels blindsided by this protest and like... I don't know why he would be blindsided. He, he knows perfectly well why this group is angry. And at the same time, you have everyone else, including Scalise, also talking publicly to the press, saying they don't know what this group wants, but, you know, it, certainly it goes back to whatever McCarthy had privately promised them during, during the effort to secure their support during the speakership vote back in January. If I were to put on my big brain conservative hat and not just look into the policies, but the mindset of an aggrieved conservative who is mad at the establishment. My read, my psychological read on the situation is they felt that McCarthy would listen to them and would enact a conservative agenda, not a Republican agenda, a conservative agenda, one that could unite the party and 
indicate to the American public, look, we're making Congress conservative. We are not making them Reagan Republican. We are not making it moderate. We are going to have a conservative, MAGA-friendly, lib-ending, small government. Right. The House Freedom Caucus is in charge. Yes, the House Freedom Caucus is in charge. And the fact that McCarthy cut a deal that they don't like is not okay with them. The fact that McCarthy relied on Democrats to get the deal passed is absolutely not okay with them. He looks like a swamp creature. It looks like they sold out to a swamp creature. You know, that's unacceptable to conservatives and to the hardliners that elected them in the first place. You know, it's a lot of like the never back down, last stand Alamo, blah, blah, blah. Here's how much we held up the government in order to get our conservative bills passed. And for McCarthy to go turn around and say like, hey, you know what? I want to keep the government running if I have to make your deal less, quote unquote, conservative. I'm going to do that. And I was talking to allies of the 20 and the House Freedom Caucus much earlier on in this process, and they were saying we would honestly drive the country off a cliff if this deal were not conservative enough. We don't believe that defaults are actually a thing. It's something that the establishment has convinced America is important. We can pay all of our bills. It's totally going to be fine. And McCarthy, the degree to which he bent to moderates could be argued here or there, but they feel like the method that he used in order to get the bill passed, it's unacceptable to a conservative crusader. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, certainly in retrospect, it makes you wonder if one reason that this group couldn't cohere and exercise their power over McCarthy was that they were not totally aligned on what they want. I mean, it it is interesting that while they have done a good job of sticking together in these moments where they want to prove a point, (laughs) you have Scalise and McCarthy basically daring them through the press to come out and actually articulate what their list of demands are. And, and, And maybe it is simply the fact that they're not all aligned in terms of the things that they want now from the speaker and his number two. So we'll see if they they kind of take that bait and come back with some kind of coherent ask. But um, this is certainly a weird one. It's a strange episode. And it's it's been interesting to see McCarthy and Scalise saying publicly that, that, that they don't even know how this is going to end right now. So I guess we'll all have to stay tuned. Tina, thanks as always for dropping by and, and talking it through. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.